Good morning. We are so glad that you could worship at Central Church today. We're so glad that you online could join us as well. This summer, we're discovering Jesus in the gospel according to John. We're using these journals. Chapter 13, Last Supper, 24 hours left to live. Self-sacrifice. This whole chapter begins with love and ends with love. In in verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And again, Jesus is trying to bring home this truth of what being a servant really means. This is going to be the Passover meal. It was a a time of uh, uh, togetherness and family gatherings. It was a time of uh, of just a spiritual time for sure, but also kind of a, uh, a celebratory time. Disciples, uh, are, we're told, we're, we're eagerly anticipating this day, and so they all start gathering. And if you've read your Bible or have heard the John 13 very much at all, you know what happens. They arrive. Typically, what would happen when you would arrive at such a gathering, uh, there would be a servant, usually a servant girl, that would wash their feet. If, if the people were poor and didn't have any servants, then the youngest child in the family would wash the feet of those who would enter. But on this occasion, there was no servant, there was no young child. There was a water and there was a basin, but there was no one there to wash the feet. And it was a typical thing, so they took their place around the table, and with apologies to Leonardo da Vinci, they were not, you know, 13 guys sitting on one side of the table. In fact, the, the, the table would have been low to the ground, which makes the importance of washing one's feet even more important, because they'd just be low to the ground, they'd kind of be lounging around, maybe back on an elbow, and so someone's head might have someone's feet right next to it. And none of the disciples saw fit to... To, to grab the, the water basin and towel and start washing feet. That never seemed to, to cross any of their minds. They just took their spot and began with what they thought was going to be the meal. And I guess my question is, is this just a case of boys being boys? Is that what's going on here? You know, we had two boys in our house growing up. Usually what would happen when Carla would go away, whether on a retreat or visit her folks or whatever, and she was gone, we were there, just me and the boys, you know, we kind of, we'd, we'd usually what we'd do is we'd put a sign on the front door, no girls allowed, and then we, you know, it was like a boys weekend, and so we could, we could do what we wanted to do, if we wanted to leave the chips out, not put them back, that's okay, we wanted to throw our socks on the floor, that's okay, we wanted to, you know, not do any of the dishes, that's okay, it was just, you know, it was just boys weekend, you know, no girls allowed, <sighs> now we always knew when mom was coming back though. So, because, you know, to quote, what, Mr. T, you know, I pity the fool who doesn't have the house clean when mama comes home. And so, two hours, you know, before, we would be spick and span and getting our house back together. Is that what's going on here? Just boys being boys, just kind of, you know, not caring? It it doesn't seem that that's just exactly the case. It, It seems like there's something deeper going on. They're all sitting there, not wanting to, to, to take the servant's place. No one seems to be moving until Jesus does. By all rights, 
Jesus should not have been the one doing this. We can all agree. And Jesus knew exactly what's going on twice in chapter 13. John tells us that Jesus knew exactly what's happening in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. And then down in verse 11, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. This isn't a shock or a surprise. And so he gets up and he grabs the water basin and he grabs the towel. Now Luke, in his account, tells us that in the midst of this, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Imagine that. The greatest is standing with them and they're arguing over who's the greatest. Again, is this, is this just a matter of boys being boys? You know, guys, they argue about who's the greatest of all, you know, all sorts of things. Who's greater, Batman, Superman, Superman. Who's the greatest tiger not named Cobb? Alkaline, of course. Who's the greatest red wing? Mr. Hockey, of course. Who's the greatest piston? Isaiah. Who's the greatest lion? <laughs> they don't know. Sometimes there's not a greatest. Is that what's going on here? Is this just a case of boys being boys? Is this a case of nervous energy? There was tension. The city was, was, was tense. Everyone was wondering. Again, remember, Jesus had just come riding into town. People were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, a king has arrived. Now it's, you know, four days later and nothing really has happened. The Romans are still in Rome and, and they're still in charge and the Pharisees are still lording it over the people and nothing has really changed and, and there's tension. What's Jesus going to do and how's he going to do it? Have you ever been in a room when there's been tension and you just, no one has to say it, you just know it. It was nine years ago this week, July 20th, uh, 2013, that Carla, my beautiful wife, jumped out of a perfectly good airplane from 14,000 feet. Crazy, I know. I was firmly on the ground. She was up there jumping out of a plane. But that wasn't supposed to be. The, the, she wasn't supposed to jump out on July 20th. She was supposed to jump out on her birthday, which is June 15th. Well, on June 15th, on her birthday, we went out to, to Butler, Missouri, to the skydiving place. And when we got there, she was supposed to jump at 12 o'clock noon. And you had to get there early enough to sign your papers just in case, you know, you wouldn't sue them if you died. And so, so we get there early. And when we got there, it was very obvious. No one said anything. But it was very tense. And there was just some, some nervous energy and tension, more so than just people jumping out of a plane, which should make them a little nervous. But it was more than that. And we couldn't put our finger on it. We didn't know what was going on, but everyone seemed to be tense, and there was just some, some things going on. Well, later, we found out what was going on. Somebody's parachute didn't open, and they had to use the emergency chute. And when the emergency chute was used, you can't steer that as well as the regular parachute. And so they didn't, this, the person, the person who jumped out of the plane, they didn't know where they were. Come to find out, they were hung up in a tree someplace. And so then, then a storm came in and she couldn't jump that way anyway. Then when we did show up on July 20th, I said to the guy, the head guy of the thing, I said, so how's all the jumps gone this year? And he said, oh, great, great, great. I said, no problems. No, no, no. I said, what about on June 15th? The... He goes, oh, that's right. You were here, weren't you? <laughs> but we knew there was just tension. Is that what's going on here? Kind of a nervous energy, tension in the air, not, not sure what to say, what to do. So Jesus gets up. Starts going from grimy foot after grimy foot. 
Peter. Always seems to be Peter's the one. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then he says, you will never wash my feet. No, sir, Jesus. And it makes him sound like he's noble, but if he were really noble, what would he have said? He said, Jesus, give me that. Give me that towel and water basin. You shouldn't be washing feet. Let me do it, Jesus. I'll, I'll take this. You sit down. I'll wash these guys' feet. I can't believe these other guys didn't do it. I'll let me do it, Jesus. If he was noble, that's what he would have said. But he wasn't. Again, he's displaying that me first, my way, self-centered attitude that Jesus is trying to convince them otherwise. Have you ever been a part of a feet washing ceremony? Some of you have. It's not a part of, of our tradition necessarily, although a couple of years ago, Pastor Joey, our middle school pastor, he led us on a Monday, Thursday, the night that commemorates this evening, that the, the night of the Lord's Supper, he made that an option. If you wanted to have your feet washed, that was part of the, the, the service that night. Pastor Joey's wife, Stephanie, is from a tradition that does feet washing. And, and a few folks did. A few folks did. But, you know, it is, it's awkward. You know, did I clip my toenails? Do I have to take off my socks? I guess I do. I have to go home with wet socks. You know, do I have a bunion? It's, it's awkward. It would have been even more awkward in the first century. Remember, uh, the reason they washed feet, why? Not, not, they didn't have, you know, uh, Tom McCann's or Sperry's or whatever. It was, it was sandals, and it was dusty roads. Roads that were, were full not only of dust, but, you know, animals, sheep and, and camels and, and donkeys and horses would walk those same roads, using it as a restroom facility as well as a pathway. And so, so those feet would be nasty. I understand the reluctance. I understand why, why they wouldn't be, you know, jumping uh, at the opportunity. But when Jesus was done, Jesus looked at them and verse 12 says, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus is giving one more lesson on being a servant. This last critical time in his life, three hours that he's spending with his disciples, the last three hours... And what's the number one, first off the, the docket message, you need to be a servant. If you want to get ahead in the, my kingdom, Jesus is saying, it's not through great accomplishments, it's being a servant. Again, remember these 12, who these 12 disciples are. These aren't the fly-by-night followers of Luke chapter 9. These are guys that have left everything to follow Jesus. You know, they, they, they left their fishing boats. Matthew left his tax collector booth. They left everything to follow Jesus. And here's the problem. They still don't get it. They've seen all the miracles, heard all the sermons, were around Jesus constantly for three hours, the most intense personal training they could possibly get. And now with only hours left in Jesus' life, they still don't get it. And that's why Jesus is hammering at home. And I think what happens, I think why this lesson is so important to John and us 
is that up until now, even in chapter 12, what we looked at last week, it's been uh, not really academic. I don't know that I would say it, an academic survey of servanthood. But it's been somewhat that, uh, the, the teacher teaching the student type of thing. But here it gets, it gets really personal. You can't get any more personal, right, than washing somebody's feet. It's, it's, it's nitty-gritty, literally. I, I don't think we'll be the people that God wants us to be until we get to the place where we can be very personal, very intimate with God Almighty and say, Lord, you need to have your way in my life. I want to be exactly where you want me to be. Now, I know this is the time when preacher types like me say, well, you need to read your Bible more, you need to pray more, and, and you know, and all that's true, and often what happens is when you hear preacher types like me say, you need to read your Bible more, you need to pray more, you think, oh, I know, you're right, but, uh, you know, I try to read the Bible before I go to bed, but I always fall asleep, and so I try to read the Bible in the morning, but I'm always in a rush, and I try to read the Bible at break at work, but there's so many distractions, and before long, I don't do it, and more guilt, 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 guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you. What I am trying to say is, if we want to grow in the Lord, it takes an intentionality of saying, we want to be with Jesus. We want to be so close to him. We want to be in a, in a spot where he can correct us and move us and shape us and mold us into the person that he wants us to be. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't doesn't necessarily happen with just bumping your head on an altar. It it, it generally takes longer than that. Call Call it progressive sanctification. Call it maturing in your faith. Call it whatever you want. It's, it's allowing God to shape you, mold you into the person you, he wants you to be. For me, that took place. I was, you know, I was in seminary. And I told you before, during my seminary years, I worked at uh, Nazarene Publishing House, now called The Foundry. I worked there. I wasn't an editor or a writer or anything like that. I was a janitor. And so when people were leaving the, work and the, 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 the place, I came and, you know, and for two years, I scrubbed toilets and, and swept up other people's messes and mopped floors and all the rest. And I was mostly by myself. We'd spend the first, you know, five or six hours cleaning on our own, and then sometimes the last couple of hours, maybe we'd work with someone else. But it was most of the time was spent just by yourself in a warehouse or in an office building or something like that. And I'd love to tell you that, oh man, those were just the best years. (laughs) Those were terrible. I hated every second of it. It was just, you know, it was nasty, it was awful, I was all by myself. And and quite honestly, I thought way too high of myself than I should have. And, and, And in those two years of scrubbing toilets and mopping floors and, and being all by myself, just Jesus and me in a bathroom stall. Jesus was shaping me and molding me and making me into the person he wanted me to be. It, it's a maturing of our faith. A maturing of our faith that only happens as we get close to Jesus. Like real close to Jesus. I remember when I look back on my growing up years, Maybe one of the most holy people, at least holy in my mind, now I was a kid, so I don't totally know, was a lady by the name of Bertha Davis. 
And now, they don't, you know, there's a lot of names, or old names are coming back. I don't know that Bertha's going to come back anytime soon. And I don't know how old Bertha was. Again, I was a kid. She was probably 50. No, she was, she was older. She, was, she had white hair. And, and when I think of Bertha Davis, I think of, of this sweet, 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 very humble, old lady widow. But I, I don't always have great memories of Bertha Davis because she was so annoying. Because on Sunday nights, back in those days, we'd have church on Sunday night, and uh, we'd have a, we didn't have a band. We'd have a song leader. And the song leader usually was either a guy by the name of Norm Norton or Dean Van Dyne. And on Sunday night, it was kind of like, choose your favorite hymn night every, every Sunday night. And so, now here's an ancient history lesson. A hymn book is what's in front of you in those, those books in the, the thing. Not the one that says Holy Bible, the other one that says whatever it says. And back in the day... Um, Every Sunday night, we would have, you know, kind of pick a favorite hymn. And every single time that Bertha Davis picked a song, we didn't have, if her hand went up, you knew exactly what number she was going to pick. And it was my least favorite song in the entire hymn book. I knew I, she was going to pick 51, number 51. Her hand goes up, it's going to be 51. I didn't like 51. I hated 51. 51 was a girly song. It was, you know, like, uh, I liked uh, the hymns growing up, you know, sound the battle cry. That sounded manly. Or victory in Jesus. That sounded manly. Or, or you know, I'm in the Lord's army. That sounded, you know, whatever. But number 51, not in this hymnal. This is like three hymnals ago. Number 51 in the old hymnal, it went like this. The first, first line went like this. I wrote it down so I made sure I get it. You know it. If you've ever been around from the old hymnal days, you've, you know it. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Are you kidding me? What a girly song, the dew on the roses. <laughs> this... The second verse was worse. You know, he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing. Come on, sound the battle cry, not hush the birds. But then the chorus, the chorus says, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. See, Bertha Davis, she understood that. She'd been a widow for years. I never, I don't remember her husband. Uh, My siblings do. I don't. He was long since dead. But this holy, wonderful lady, she understood that she needed one that would walk with her and talk with her and tell her that she was his own. That's an intimacy with Jesus. That's a, that's a, a closeness with Jesus that leads then to his servanthood, that leads then to not having to have it our own way, but a humility and a self-sacrificial way and a saying, I want to do whatever Jesus would have me to do. That's what's going on here. What makes Jesus' words in John 13 so remarkable is, again, he knew who he was washing the feet of. This wasn't just, you know, 
these great friends who were going to stick close to him no matter what, through thick and thin. No, he knew exactly. They were all going to rebel. They were all going to turn their back on him. They were all going to betray him in a matter of hours. Servanthood is not just for those who deserve it. Sometimes we need to be humble and Christ-like and servants even to those that don't deserve it. Because quite frankly, we don't deserve it. So Jesus says, you've seen what I do, now you do it. And he culminates this whole discussion in verse 34 and 35 when he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. A new command I give you, Jesus said. Now we know the Ten Commandments, right? And you know uh, the greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You may know the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But here Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command. Now I don't want to be uh, nitpicky with Jesus. You should never be nitpicky with Jesus. But I'm going to nitpick a little. Jesus, what's new about love one another? That's not so new. Moses said to love one another. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said you need to love one another and love even your enemies. So what's new about this new command, love one another? You know what's new? It's the next phrase, love one another. How? As I have loved you. That's what Jesus wants from us. That we are to love, 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 love like Jesus, not love to get our way, not love to to somehow whatever, but love in a self-sacrificing, humble, servanthood type of way, love like Jesus. And when we've done that, what does he say, the key word? Then everyone, not even some, everyone, if you love like Jesus, then everyone will know you're my disciple. I've told you before, one of the most remarkable historians look at um, the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. After three years of tremendous ministry, right? Healing uh, hundreds, feeding thousands, raising at least three people from the dead, Jesus managed to gather 120 disciples in the upper room. That's it. That's not very good, really. You would think that, you know, you could have done a little better than 120 And after the day of Pentecost, there was 120 in the upper room. After the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that 3,000 became Christians that day. So now you're at 3,120. And historians say by the time that John passed away, John was the last living disciple, died probably around the year 100 AD. Around the year 100 AD, so when the last disciple died, there was about 25,000 Christians, historians say. So it went from 120 to 3,120, and in 60 years, they managed to get 25,000. That's still not that great. But by the time that Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, in the year 312, do you know how many Christians there were? 20 million. 20 million. So what happened in those 200 years to go from 25,000 to 20 million? in a population far less than what the world has today. How could that happen? How could they go from 25,000 to 20 million? It was, there wasn't a great preacher. They didn't have a, uh, you know, a marketing campaign. 
How did they go from 25,000 to 20 million? Historians point to two things in the second century. Plagues. Everyone, a plague would come into a town and everyone in that town would scatter. They would leave because plague came into the town. Except the Christians. Christians would stick around. The Christians would tend to those who were sick. The Christians would, would be there. They, they refused to ignore the circumstance. They knew that a plague was there. They refused to imitate their culture and take off as soon as the first sign of someone getting sick came along. They refused to, to uh, uh, you know, set up protest places down with the plague. No, what they did was they served. And now, some of them died. Some of those second century, third century Christians died because they were tending to people who had the plague. And guess what? They got the plague too. Jesus didn't heal them all. But you know what happened? Some of those folks that they were tending to, they lived. And when they lived, you know what? They told their family members who took off and left them to die. Said, you know what? You left me, but these people didn't. And I'm going to follow the one that they follow. If that's what that means. If, if, if it means being there when, when my family leaves and when everyone leaves, but these Christians, they loved me, they cared for me, they tended for me, and now I'm going to follow them. And that happened over and over and over again until there was 20 million. And Constantine had to say, all right, you Christians, there's something happening here. Listen, we are called to love like Jesus loved be the Jesus kind of people. It's the Jesus way. It's the Bertha Davis way. It's getting close to Jesus. It's not getting on a high horse, not being on a war horse. It's taking the path of humility, the path of servanthood, and saying, I want to live as Jesus would have me to live. It's going where he would have you to go. It's being the people he would have you to be. We get real practical. What's that mean, Pastor, for me? That means don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Jesus was getting his hands dirty. Maybe it's going to a widow and helping her out or going to a single mom and helping her out or, or tutoring a student or just every single ministry in the church needs volunteers. You know an easy way? Here's, a first, here's an easy first step. Put in a prayer request and sign up to pray one of those hours, even if it's two in the morning, saying, I want to I wanna, I wanna do what Jesus had me to do. Be what Jesus would have me to be. Getting my hands dirty and serving Jesus with all my heart. It's the Jesus way, the birth of Davis way, the second, third Christian, century Christian way. It's the only way, the only way to experience true joy.